0: Look at this red on my stock screen. I can't believe what's going on. Stocks are down. Does it mean I'm a loser? I don't know. I need some self worth now. <laughs> oh God!
1: In three,
2: two. Let your winners ride. Rainman, David. Sach-
0: Queen
1: of I'm going to hey everybody hey everybody welcome back the all in podcast is back apologies about last week i had a personal emergency are we,
0: are we allowed to say why of course i mean uh, you can say it go say
1: it say it, say well, it. anyway it's a humble break with us today say, on no, the say program it. Explain you explain want to it. say queen it explain of explain david Freiberg. Tremont following oh up the dictator and the rain man himself david Sachs. Can i was on please? a world tour I was no, on a world tour.
0: No, no, no. Come right. on. just I'll,
1: I'll tell the story. Obviously, I don't like to talk about a certain friend of mine because he's very high profile. And I don't talk
2: about it in public. <laughs> just flex. Just, just flex. flex. Just it's do okay. it and move I on. I have
1: been lifting. I just want to let people no, know the good show's back. No, you been- were
2: backstage at SNL helping uh, Elon with uh, uh, the SNL appearance. Were you not? This is true. Tell us what that was like. Tell us about the backstage experience. Yeah, tell us about backstage. the backstage
0: experience. I mean, we were we were living it out in real time with you guys. But tell us what first, it was really like. First, tell us okay. why
2: why Elon recruited you to do it. <laughs> All uh, right. so are you Elon's funniest friend?
0: <laughs> Arguably, uh, well, I mean, he know I mean, he's got. You no, know, guys, of hold on. I, don't you remember the joke in the at Sax's roast five years ago? Remember when Elon was late and I had that ad lib joke, there were two jokes that I landed at Sax's thing, which I thought were no, the two name. fun. No, Jason, my thing. I, and I, when, I, 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 wait, my, when I was being roasted? No. Wait, was it Jason's party? Sax. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, hosted
2: it, I hosted Jason's roast.
0: Yeah. That's right. At That's right. Job. It was your roast. It was yeah. your roast. Yeah. Anyways, okay, go ahead. You're the funniest Otherwise friend. Otherwise
2: okay, known as the, the funniest night of-
0: All of our collective of,
2: lives. Yes. it was, oh, really my God. was really funny. That was really fun., we have to yeah. tell stories from that sometime sometime we'll tell the jay cow roast you probably are elon's funniest friend and and have a talent for for writing let's not beat around the bush let's not beat around okay i'll take
1: that i'll take the compliment um so i left to go on a little trip to go to austin to see some friends and then miami to see some friends one of those friends uh uh, who i uh, hooked up with and was hanging out with in miami was obviously elon and uh he was doing Saturday Night Live. And we were just coming up with ideas around the dinner table. And we were just laughing our asses off just brainstorming ideas that would never be allowed on television. You know, and um, he said, Hey, would you come with me to Saturday Night Live? And I was like, Oh, that's great. Do You have enough tickets. I assumed he meant Saturday night, you know, and you know, he said, No, I don't have a lot of tickets. It's COVID. It's like half his money. I, would you come with me? um to the writer's room and just, you know, be my wingman basically. So I had like three, four board meetings and five podcasts, so I just you know, I talked to <laughs> So it was
3: like an instant yes.
2: <laughs> so I checked your schedule. You had to you have to check your schedule. Yeah. I
1: didn't have to check my schedule <laughs> no i mean i take my
3: work seriously you're like so I Elon, to call Elon, can you give me about half a second to decide well <laughs> i had already made the
1: decision in my mind that if my friend needs help you guys have been in similar situations where you've asked me for help i've i've rolled with chamoff on speaking gigs or going down to try to you know save uh sacks from going into complete utter madness and oh my god <laughs> in yes. Cabo.
2: this, this yes, is not sir. crisis management anyway so you said anyway, yes you went so i said you're, yes and yeah.
1: you know without giving uh I, well I'll, without giving away anything that was private or confidential they have a process that they've been doing for 46 years and we came in you know with our own process of what we wanted to do and it, it kind of was uh, a, you know kind of an interesting thing because a lot of the ideas i had were let's just say a little too far out for the cast uh, or for the writers uh, but some of them landed and I got to spend a lot of time with Lauren Michaels um, and I really worked on my impersonation of him. He's Canadian. He's Canadian. And I was like, so Lauren, tell us who were the worst hosts ever. And he's like, um, it's an interesting question, Jason. You know, we don't like to think of it that way, but, um, with, um, there, in terms of people who thought they were smart and maybe were not as smart as they thought they were, Stephen. Segal um, was a little <laughs> bit difficult, and
2: what a there was, safe uh, choice. That's a very safe Chris, choice. There was Chris Christopherson, um, you know, back in '78. He wasn't a musical
1: um, guest. That was Carly Simon, and um, he. He liked to drink, and uh, in this very green room in 78, he had a couple of drinks during the rehearsal, the dress rehearsal, so we we wheeled in some coffee, and like any sports team, when the game starts, we play the game. Okay, so, so
2: so who was responsible for the Chad skit?
1: Okay, so Chad's an existing character. And that was a really amazing one to watch because we went to Brooklyn to a warehouse and the production was incredible. And what the, the role I played, if I'm being totally honest, is to just, you know, be Elon's friend and be there with him. But also, you know, was that funny for you? Was that, fu- should I do that? Should I not do that? Because there punch are some, up. no,
2: you were a punch up man. I was
1: a punch up guy. I wrote some lines <laughs> without, you know, taking anything away from the writers there who do the bulk of the work and the actors and the set designers. It is amazing to see what they do. Uh, like we had to go through 40 scripts and you know when you read something in a script it, it's kind of hard to know if it's funny but then when you put chloe or you know kate mckinnon or colin jose or che or mikey day like this, these people are phenomenally talented so all of a sudden the script comes alive but for the for the um the the the, the two punch-ups I, I got really good i'll just give you one anecdote because i don't want to get myself in too much were trouble. you
0: responsible for besties in the gen z hospital no comment on that one <laughs> I thought that, as soon as I saw it, I thought of you. Yeah, And then of course. The, other, the other one that I thought was incredibly well done was Murder
1: Durder. Okay, so I had nothing to do with that one. Um, and I thought, we thought that was like, we thought that one was incredibly dumb. Like when you read it on the script, it was like, is this funny or not? But they, you know, this is the thing. You, you add <sighs> tremendous performance and you uh, add incredible set design. And we were, we were in Brooklyn at three in the morning and Elon comes out with that wig on. In a, in a suit, and I, we just start laughing hysterical, and he just goes right into creepy priest. It was that was hilarious. What about
3: the Asperger's joke? Because
1: yeah, you, that was me. You,
3: yeah, you use that as a tease uh, amongst people we may mutually know a lot. Yes. Yeah. And so when I heard yeah. it, I was like, oh, that's a Jason joke so, that's a Jason sure. Joke. That's actually okay. what, but what I'm proud of. But what's so, what's
1: what's but what what's so OJ? ironic?
3: No, but what's so ironic is the Asperger's joke came out, and then everyone, all these press articles got written saying Elon has admitted publicly to having Asperger's, <laughs> and he is. We are so proud of him, and it is such a, a moment to come clean about having yeah. this this thing. And it was like a Jason Shocker. joke. That, yeah, this Jason joke that became a uh, oh my yeah. gosh, you know what a.
1: I'll, I'll tell you, I'm particularly proud of that one because here's how that one went down. They had an idea to do Jeopardy. And it was probably the flattest pitch, um, because, you know, it's like 11 o'clock at night, a writer comes in and says, we want to do Jeopardy uh, auditions, and we want it's a kind of a feature for the cast to do auditions. I don't know if you ever saw the Star Wars auditions yeah, or the yeah. Jurassic Park auditions kind of in that vein. So I was like, I, for me, I was like, oh, that sounds like it's got potential. But it was a very dry pitch. They didn't have any examples. And when they actually did it, it was like really weird characters that were obscure. So I had pitched uh, my own version of Jeopardy and Elon had his version of Jeopardy. <laughs> Elon's version of Jeopardy was Dictator Jeopardy, which was Kim Jong-un, you know, MBS, Putin, you know, et cetera. And then I was like, how to deal with your adversaries? And he was like, "Uh, for 800. And he's like, Planonium. And I was like, genocide. It it got really dark. And so we are laughing our asses about that. You know, but then like there were security concerns. Basically, we're kind of dialing this around – the, it would be as funny as the, it would be a direct correlation of funny to the chances of Elon being assassinated by one of those people. <laughs> so then we decided maybe we don't do that one. And I said, I've got a great idea Asperger's Jeopardy. <laughs> and it would be Zuck, Elizabeth Holmes, which Chloe uh, from the show, who's an absolute genius, incredibly sweet. And she really engaged deeply with Elon and connected with uh, our team. And then obviously Elon. And so you'd have Elon playing Zuck somebody playing Elon and then Chloe playing Elizabeth Holmes. And they would be like, you know, um, how to deal with an intense uh, situation with an employee. And then presses it. Don't make eye contact, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and so one of the writers, w- I could tell she was not happy about this. And she says, listen, my husband has Asperger's. My two brothers have Asperger's. And all of a sudden we're in like, okay, you know, we can't
2: offend anyone. land, We
1: can't offend anybody land, and I would say, you know, 80 90% of the staff is very, you know, like, let's go for it. And then there's probably 10 or 20 who are very sensitive to different topics. And so it's a, there's a little navigation you have to do there. But we really want and then so Elon <laughs> goes, I have Asperger's. And you know, like the whole room is like, wow. So then I was workshopping with somebody and I wasn't in the writer's room. I, I, I contributed 2% that max, other than you know, being Elon's friend and, and, and supporting him. But you know, they came in and said, Hey, when they didn't want to ask Elon something, they came to me. And I negotiated some situations like they didn't originally want to have any Doge Father or any cryptocurrencies on the show. We had to negotiate that. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, no, they have they have they have general counsel there. They have standards. They're now on it. Well, now, now,
2: now we know why the show's not funny anymore. There's too many people with the, the show, veto. I love
1: the show. I think it's very funny. Well, I, just I think mean,
2: Elon Elon made it culturally relevant for the first time in like a decade. But, so they but can, what you're yes. describing is too many people with a veto right over right. the content of the show. That's right. what makes it not funny. You got to be willing. No, no. To I offend. think the
1: show, I think the show is very funny. I think they take some artistic at risk and what's not funny to us might be like funny to some other folks. So that's why it's hit or miss, but certainly moving the show from 1130 on the West Coast definitely has an impact. So what they could have done 10 years ago before the timing was synced. Between the West and East Coast is different. They're now on in prime know, time. But
3: there's still a big cultural shift that's happened. It's like yeah. Texas. Anyway, like yeah.
1: I'll give you the two the two it's best. Not, moments. It's not
2: it's not John Belushi anymore when the, the like the corporate CEO comes on the show and, and wants to do crazier, wilder stuff than right. the people, you know, who yeah, are yeah. the regulars. But anyway, yeah. keep going.
1: So anyway, um, you know, the, one of the f- folks who's working on the monologue, you know, comes in. And, and the original monologue, you know, the, all these things go from rough to potential to good to great to amazing. And so, for me, it was, you know, just you guys know my career choice. It like, just really made me think, like, maybe I picked the wrong career choice because I'm pretty fucking good at this. <laughs> I should do this. So, I started to call it at the after party. I was like, you know, I've kind of made my money already. Is there any chance I can get an internship? He's like, uh No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But it's I think okay, Jason, just, you, can, you can always take credit for being the third or fourth writer on Elon's monologue.
1: Perfect, forever.
2: exactly. <laughs> so anyway, they're
1: doing the, they, they said they wanted to do an Asperger's joke, I said, so I, I wrote the Asperger joke of, you know, hey, I just want to let people know I'm, I've got Asperger's, and um, um, so there's not going to be a lot of eye contact tonight. So if you see me looking off screen, it's not that I'm looking at cue cards, it's just that I have Asperger's. So they didn't keep the cue card part, but they kept the rest of it. Um and then they did the OJ joke which was written by Colin Jost who is absolutely phenomenal as a human uh just as a writer and and a collaborator and, and we spent a lot of time with Colin Jost. He came in and um they had this joke about OJ having been on in 79 and 96. The 96 was a joke. He wasn't actually on in 96. I think that's when he went to jail or something. And I said to him I said I don't think people understand the joke. They actually think he was on in 96. He goes, "Well, let's just rehearse it." So we're in the green room rehearsing and Elon goes, "You know, so hey and um you know, like OJ, like you know, like I'm smoking weed on every podcast. It's a, that's like saying OJ, you know, you know, murdered once and now he's a murderer forever. Uh, you know, and, you know, side note, he was on in 79 and 96. And I just go like this and he killed both times. <laughs> And the room, there's like a silence, and then everybody goes hysterical. It's like one of my, you know,
0: poker asides. Yeah. Like, when I drop yeah. a joke and I take yeah. a sip of my wine. That's fabulous. So I that's drop fabulous.
3: it. I bet there was like a split second where everyone looks left and right. It's like, is it okay that's to it? No, laugh? No, that's my yeah. point. Like, is yeah. it okay to laugh at this? Yeah.
1: And Colin Jones just looks at me and goes, that's getting in there. And I, so I landed that one. Um, yeah. So there were, you know, some moments like that. For me, I, I tell you, I, 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 I'll get emotional talking about it um it's one of the happiest times i've ever seen in elon's life and i've been with him for 20 years actually you've known him for for 25 obviously And the feeling of monday and tuesday that oh my god this could be a complete utter disaster i mean that was our fear and that like we we're just not in sync here and these maybe it's going to be unfunny and this is a huge mistake like that was kind of our vibe from our our squad and we had um three of us there um uh, including elon and then you know we we the, the Asperger jokes lands, and I, I tell you, a woman from a uh, wardrobe comes in, and she's crying. She's crying. And she says, uh, you know, she sees me first, and we, she had been there when we were doing the joke, and she said, my son, you know, was beat up for having Asperger's, and, you know, this changes everything.
0: Wow.
3: Just so it became like It became like a serious thing.
1: It, three or four people came in to the room, I kid you not, crying. About, oh my god! Because one in kid one, one in twenty boys, I think now have Asperger's. Do you, guys, or,
3: can, do you guys remember in Living Color? you remember that show from the early nineties? Yes. Oh can my you, god! Can you juxtapose like? like comedy today and comedy from in living color where they had like Damon Wayans as like the, the homeless guy and like everything that would be <laughs> so like non PC today and like totally yeah. inappropriate and how much things have shifted where like even the joke becomes like, you know, a serious kind Can of. Can I
0: ask a question? Sorry, Jason, when, when people were getting emotional, it was because of why they were like, thank you for validating and putting it out there and showing a, a role model. Is that uh, it? One, one of
1: the squawk alley guys, you know, basically got choked up twice on Monday. And he said, Elon can go, do no wrong in my mind now because I'm dealing with a son who has Asperger's and they do something sometimes that can be very challenging as a parent, right? And well, it I, just I, explains a lot about, and we all know people who have Asperger's, <coughs> David's, and we, we know people who are <laughs> further can, on the can, spectrum. Okay. And as, as someone
2: who's been accused of being on the spectrum, can I speak to this issue? I mean, yes. like, look, If anything, Asperger's is correlated with an uh, extreme ability to focus and to be successful. That's why there's so many people in tech who have Asperger's or have been accused of having Asperger's. Um, So, I don't know that it's something that people have to be, I I guess, unless you have like an extremely, like extreme case, like on the kind of in the autistic um, part of the spectrum. but. Like mild Asperger's probably is correlated with success because it's like the opposite of ADD, right? It's the it's it's, yeah. it's an extreme ability to focus. Um, but honestly, like what you're describing to me sounds so lame. Like this is why the show's <laughs> not funny anymore. It's not about the jokes. Look, uh, it no, should be about the jokes. The joke it's- I
1: disagree hundred percent. That joke landed. <laughs> it made everybody laugh.
0: It may have landed a little too close well, to somebody. On, guys, guys, just to just to, just to disinter- the, the reason David, you're saying this is because we all know, at least the three of us, four of us, what was not, what did not make it, and what's on the cutting. <laughs> that's why you're saying it. And <laughs> right. so I think you have yeah. to just kind of move on. I can't say on. what did make it to the cutting not, room floor, no, no, no. but I will tell you.
1: I will. I will reveal one skit that made it. No, to no you can't. You, you can't. Out. You can't. You cannot. You can. I can. It's just one. I mean, there was one they recorded, which I think will come out as a digital short, and the premise is FOMO capital, <laughs> fear of missing out capital. That was good and, and, and,
0: and oh, yeah. that was a good one
1: that was your right that was your idea or elon's i'm trying to remember where it originated we, we were just talking about you know just the state of like people buying nfts and everything and i think elon may have said like they all have fomo and then i was like yeah i'd be like a venture capital firm that and then he named it fomo capital so it was a little bit of a collaboration but i think mostly elon in that one and the <laughs> this person comes in <laughs> And the skit is hilarious. So, they're probably going to release it as a digital short, like cut for time, but re- release it. And the skit, the person comes in and there's like an associate who's being trained. Um, and he's, they're like, Welcome to FOMO Capital, where we never say no to nothing. And th- he's like, Okay, I, I don't know if I understand that. They're like, sit down, you'll get the hang of it. And then people come in with increasingly ridiculous ideas. And I'll just tell you one of them, which was <laughs> a woman comes in, goes, so, you guys know Impossible Meats? This is Impossible Vegetables. These, are ve- these taste just like vegetables, but this broccoli is made with um, endangered white rhinos. Mmm, <laughs> and she takes a bite <laughs> of it. Tastes just like broccoli. <laughs> and right. Elon goes, this is amazing, and they hand them a Picasso. <laughs> and then somebody comes in and says, like, oh, blah, 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 It's just hilarious. It's just more and more money being Why didn't poured. that get in the show? Well, what they do is they do a two-hour show with a live audience and they just take out two or three skits and so there were three skits i think that were taken out for time and then those could be released digitally
0: now so they just want to have
3: extra they did a long opening they did like i think it was like 10 minutes on the mother's Mother's day 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 one can i
0: can i just say miley cyrus has the most incredible voice oh my god i could listen to her sing forever oh she has got an incredible voice so, I was. I, oh I thought gosh. the
2: opening. Wow. I thought the opening was really shaky. I mean, I was there. This is the first time I've watched live TV in like ten years. Ever since Apple You're TV right. was invented, I'm sitting there waiting for Elon to come out and, and crush the monologue. And then Miley Cyrus does this long, unfunny thing with all these mothers. It's great. You know, it's meant to be unfunny. Awesome. First of all, my, David, my it's my not mom. a
0: thing. It was a song. It was a song. But that's called and the song, it David. A, It It was was a a,
2: a WTF moment for me. I was like, where is Elon? Bring out Elon, I'm not here to see a bunch of mothers. I mean, (laughs) that's I I I said, I'll
1: tell you, that was an interesting moment, David. Because they were like, Elon, we'll put you in like four of the skits out of the seven and Elon and we don't want to work, you know, Elon too hard. So I was doing these sort of sidebars with some of the producers, uh, one in particular, who is just a phenomenon. She's she's an amazing producer who just gets everything done. Because this all occurs from Monday to Saturday, and they work 16, 18 hours a day. And, um, you know, she said, you know, we we don't want to take up too much of his time. So we think four is the right number. And I said, you know, he gave up the week. He's the busiest guy in the world, arguably. He wants to be in every skit. And she's like, well, nobody really does that. Uh, Maybe a comedian here or there. And uh, Elon just said, if I'm here, use me, I want to be in every skit. And like, they, we had to, like, reshuffle the deck a bit, and, and he was willing to do anything, including Wario or, you know, and yeah. wear a costume or be the creepy priest. He, he, you know, and, uh, Elon was funny. Um, he and surpri- it was just, I think
2: he surprised everyone uh, he really in terms of being job. a performer, just in terms yes. of his performance. I think it was really strong. Um, it was as good as, like, you know, someone who's in the entertainment business would be, I think. Um, uh, I think it's e- a even universal his critics, take. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's a universal take. Even Elon's sort of haters had to concede that he performed well. He kind of committed to all those roles, even when it was like poking fun at himself.
1: Yeah, I had to, I had to dunk on Professor uh, Dummy uh, Galloway, who was like, I'm going to live tweet Elon. And he's just like going on CNN, talking about Elon. He's going on every fucking cable channel he can to, to like ride Elon's coattails. And he tweeted, Elon would lo- Tesla would lose 80, 90% of its value two years ago. Like, just, are you kidding me? <laughs> but I agree, like even someone like professor galloway who said tesla was worthless he is now just all over it and and it humanized him you know um which is nice and, and I, I think it, he did a
0: i think he did a great job yeah. and uh it was um, fun I'm, I'm super happy for him yeah, lauren
1: michaels came in and said elon you did a great job come <laughs> back anytime sincerely and um I said, how about next year? Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
0: You're his uh, agent. <laughs> You're like his I'm agent. Like basically, I'm what, just, what are we? What are we making a sequel? And He's the punch-up guy. He's <laughs> the agent. He's the hype man. <laughs> the negotiator.
1: <laughs> I was doing mostly negotiations, and, 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 and Laura Michael said, absolutely, Jason. We'd love to have Elon back. You absolutely crushed it. And, <laughs> I,
0: you know, Elon's busy in the green room. By the way, do we know what the ratings were?
1: Uh, Third best show of the season so far, I think, not counting all the YouTube views and the international views. I think Chappelle's the only person who beat him. Um, So, you know, know. I I think think a couple
2: of those those skits are going to live forever, I think, on YouTube. I mean, the Chad skit in particular was really hit it out of the park. Mm -hmm. By the way, my observation on the skits were the ones where Elon was kind of indispensable were really really great. Like the Chad thing, and I thought that the Western run where... Well, Leron, you know, where he plays this like 18th Leron. century Old yeah. West version of himself. It's like this genius in the Old West who's telling them to ride electric horses or something. Yeah. I, for me, that was really funny. So I thought the ones where Elon was sort of indispensable, the more indispensable Elon was to the skit, I thought the better it was. And then some of the skits, I mean, look, live sketch comedy is very hit or miss. I thought the ones that were more missed were the ones where they could have done them without Elon. It could have been a skit, any, any, yeah. you know, any SNL. And I kind of like, like, accurate. Yeah. yeah, it's like why wouldn't you take advantage of having Elon there and 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 they, focus and they did,
1: um, you know, and just to the
2: staff, you know, yeah. First
1: off, I'm sorry I was such a ruckus <laughs> <laughs> and such a disruptor in the uh, in the space. But uh, really, I mean, what a great time Elon had a great time. The after party was amazing. Uh, and uh, describe miles. the after
2: party. Were they wearing masks? <laughs>
1: Ooh, that's a, that's a good segue. That's a good segue. That's no, no, no that's it was outside. Segue. No, I'll just leave that that it it a good segue. It was an but, outside party, uh, but we danced until th- th- this is actually for real, yeah, and I think it's a good segue into just what we're seeing out there. I left San Francisco having been yelled at somebody because my mask fell off. I didn't know it, and I had gone into you know a store, and they were like your mask. and They yelled it across the store, you know, and I was like, <laughs> oh sorry, you know, it was just kind of you know how when they fall off you don't notice it. Then I got to Austin. And when I'm in Austin, I'm walking down the street, I'm the only person in Austin wearing a mask, and somebody points at me and goes, you don't have to wear that mask, son. And I was like, oh, and I look around, there's nobody wearing a mask, I'm, it's my first day there. And he goes, you've been vaccinated? I said, yeah, he goes, you really don't need to wear a mask. So I take the mask off, I get to Florida, a friend of mine was out, uh, you know, uh, at a, having a cocktail at a bar, invites <laughs> me to meet him for a cocktail, I go to meet him for a cocktail there's a dj and there's he who shall
0: he who shall not be named anyway i went to have a cocktail
1: <laughs> as one does in miami there's a hundred two hundred people two hundred people in the club the only people wearing masks are the staff who are wearing them as chin guards and i'm like that's not the purpose of a mask. but okay so and then i get to new york and everybody in new york is wearing one or two masks on the street on i walk down an empty street
0: okay so we should talk we should talk about that cdc article that was in the new york times because that's an incredible summary jason of of this whole issue in a nutshell which is it's it's unbelievable
1: and, and then to just give saturday night live a nod every day everybody tested you got you know two tests like the I, I, I forget the names of them now since i stopped taking them but you did like the the big one and the small one every day you got tested every day you got wristbands you had to wear a mask 100% of the time. And then when you were in the studio, you had to wear the glass shield. So if you saw the picture I did of myself and Elon, and blood pop, Michael, who's a famous producer for Justin Bieber, and Lady Gaga who's a friend of ours. Mike had to wear it too. So we're we're I mean, Elon had a mask on because he had to take it off to do skits. But all the rehearsals, everybody was masked up, including the actors, and everybody was vaccinated. So they really are taking this seriously, and I understand because they, in New York, they had a ton of people die, and to get a, I, my understanding, uh, this is what I heard secondhand, was that Lauren Michaels had to get a special variance to keep Saturday Night Live on the air from, you know, the governor and the mayor, and everybody had to sign off on it, but um, I tweeted. This is
2: not, this is not taking COVID seriously, this is, this is basically an irrational fear of COVID.
1: Well, they, because they got hit the hardest, David. So I think that they got hit the hardest. And I tweeted, why is everybody wearing a mask in New York? And of course, I got like 100 uh, because there's a pandemic. But then what the, the two reasons that made sense were so many people died, and there was so much suffering in New York that people, out of a sign of respect, are still wearing them until they hit your herd immunity officially, um, which I know you could roll your eyes at, David. But you know, they did have a, it would be the only
2: I don't think that's the real reason.
1: No, well, anyway, I do actually do think it's the real reason because people multiple people said to me it's a way of showing people that you actually care about them and that you're going to really take this seriously until the end.
2: No, I think it's it's more what Ezra Klein said, which is this is the red MAGA hat for Team Blue. This is pure virtue signaling
1: possible. The other thing they said was on a practical basis in New York, you're, you know, on the subway, your office and in, you know, going into a cafe, you have to wear it and you're doing that 17 times a day. So taking the mask on and off just becomes less work than just leaving it on. That's, those were reasonable answers I got. But anyway, somebody summarize the story. Another,
2: another reason, I think, is that, look, if you're, if you're in a blue part of the country, um, the media sources for Team Blue are still promoting this idea uh, that outdoor spread is a thing, that it's, it's a risk. Um, we're, we're finally now getting, I mean, we, we've known since last summer that there were no cases, no documented cases of casual outdoor spread anywhere in the world. The Atlantic was reporting on this, okay? This is not a conservative publication. This is a liberal, a skew yeah. liberal publication. Liberal okay? leaning. Yes, exactly. So, we've known since last summer, I mean, when Gavin Newsom declared that we weren't allowed to go to the beach, it was widely mocked. And so, only now is the CDC getting around to loosening its guidance on outdoor mask wearing, but it's still not loose enough. And so there was a great article by David Leonard in the New York Times that just came out, I think, yesterday or two days ago, called, about the cautious CDC. And, and what he said is by the way, this just validates everything we've been saying on the pod for the last few months. Leonard chronicles the, the sort of absurdly conservative um, guidance given by the CDC. Basically, the CDC continues to suggest that outdoor transmission accounts for up to 10% of cases. When the real number is certainly under 1%, is probably under 0.1%. And this is all based on a single study in Singapore where that was misclassified. It was based on a construction site that really wasn't even an outdoor spread. And yet the CDC still insists that unvaccinated people need to wear masks outdoors, that vaccinated people wear them in large public values, and that children at summer camp wear them at all times. This is the current CDC guidance. And so yesterday, when the head of the CDC was Pulled in front of a congressional hearing and asked about this, uh, she doubled down on this less than ten percent. And and the reason why it's so misleading is, technically speaking, less than ten percent is correct. But when the real number is 0001 percent or something like that, it's highly misleading to give ten percent. And the well, reason
0: the, the line in the article, which I loved, is it is accurate to say that sharks eat less than two hundred thousand <laughs> humans a year. But it is also more accurate to say sharks attack 150 humans a year. Right. And 150 is very different than 200,000. But if you say sharks attack, you know, 200,000 people or less a year, y- you would think that it's a, it's a much bigger problem than it actually is. And I think that's the whole point, which is we um, we're not being scientific. We're being emotional and reactive.
3: And the paper that Leonard um, references, basically, they took this data that identified how spread was occurring empirically, and identifying, you know, through tracing, you know, where are people actually picking up COVID. And that's really where this empirical evidence suggests, we're talking about a less than 0.1% casual outdoor spread rate. And you can see that empirically in the data, But then there's also this deterministic kind of approach where you could say, like, look, how does spread happen spread happens with viruses, we know that viruses need to live in liquid in order to survive when you're outdoors, if there's any amount of wind or UV light, um, the virus can very quickly degrade the protein can degrade The RNA doesn't transfer. And so there's a a deterministic rationale for scientific rationale for why that may be the case. And this evidence that this paper, which I've now shared, kind of gathers together shows that, um, you know, that that is indeed what the statistics are showing. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. But I think the the precautionary principle, David, is where the argument would be made on the other side, which is, you know, what's the cost of wearing a mask if there's any risk at all. Um, and by the way, I'm not I'm not making this case personally, but I think that's where a lot of people would, would make the counter argument um, rather than debate the facts and the evidence and the science. They would say, but who cares? It's just a mask. Why does that matter? Um, and so I think the question is, why does it matter, right? Like, why does it matter if they're telling us to wear masks? Is there really that much of a cost to people to do that?
2: Well, I mean, if people are doing it voluntarily, that's their right to to do so. But the question is mass mandate. Should we continue to have mandates on the population for something that isn't necessary? And look, I was one of the first people in March of 2000 to call for Mass wearing and mass mandates because we were seeing the data out of the Asian countries showing that they were effective they were high cost or high benefit low cost so I was in favor of it when there was a, p- a pandemic raging but when t zero the rate of transmission is in free fall everywhere, and now we've learned that outdoor spread is not an issue. I don't support restricting people's freedom and if you know for for for, for a, a for a reason that's not rooted in science and you know, the problem with the CDC guidance is that people really act on it. So you've got politicians, you've got local jurisdictions who will you not have schools. do, schools. do have schools. I mean, so the schools have remained closed. And by the way, the schools have been open in Texas and Florida for six months. We know, based on empirical data in the real world, seeing what's happening in Texas and Florida, that, that you're not seeing an increase in COVID cases in those places because of school reopening. And yet the CDC has not moved its guidance on school reopening. You have summer camps now that, for liability reasons, will make kids wear masks because they can't take the risk of getting sued. And then you've got politicians like Gavin Newsom. Him, who won't wipe their ass without the CDC's permission to do so. So it has a real consequence in the real world that the CDC is stuck on this ridiculous guidance. Did we
1: did we read the actual sentence from the New York Times about under 10%? So the
0: the No, you could read it
1: cuz it's yeah. it's
2: really sad actually.
1: <laughs> uh just in terms of the misleading CDC numbers, they said in quotes under 10% of the spread has occurred outside. When in reality the share of transmission that occurred outdoors seems to be below 1% and maybe below 0.1%, multiple uh, epidemiologists told me.
2: Right. Well, also also read the quote. This is directly from David Leonard in the New York Times. Um, and I think it's important to, you know, it's great when you can quote the New York Times or the Atlantic because these are left-leaning publications. So, Team Blue should be more uh, willing to accept them. What Leonard said is there's not a single documented COVID infection anywhere in the world from casual outdoor interactions. But do people know that? I mean, do the people walking down the street with masks on know that? Um, well, they'll, they'll know
0: it now. Cause according, by the way, did you guys know Jason just told me this? We accumulate a million views slash listens a week to our podcast yeah now so that now, the archive's growing yeah so now now that now now a million people will at least know i mean at least
3: <laughs> i think it's you know um it's, I, it's, it's a good also segue. it's a little bit self-selective so let's be honest
1: you know yeah for intelligence i mean some of the
0: people no 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 but but the real question is like w- I, isn't this an opportunity for the cdc to actually re-establish some credibility which is to say okay we're gonna get back to facts we're not gonna we are not we know that people will be prone to acting on anecdote and emotion. So we're going to be grounded in truth and fact. We went back. We looked at the Singapore study. Here are the flaws in it. Here's how it applies. Own and it. so we're going to own it and revise it. And that would go such a long way. The fact is they, they, they uh, it, it's, it's important to understand, like, what do you think the incentives are for them to keep doubling down on bad decision making? Uh, By the way, way, uh, I I
3: think I said this, I I think I said this a few months ago, which is I don't think that the CDC or any um, kind of medical, uh, you know, uh, administrative um, uh, group in particular, has to uh, think about the synthesis of the effects of some of the policy that they're recommending. Their objective is to save lives. So if I'm running the CDC, I'm going to tell people, don't leave your home ever, don't drink alcohol, don't eat red meat, exercise, you have to exercise 60 minutes a day or you get taxed. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could see if if you were purely focused on saving lives you would make specific recommendations only to save lives without thinking about the consequences outside of saving lives. The consequences outside of saving lives of you know telling people to wear masks is it minimizes economic activity, some might argue. Therefore, there's going to be an impact on airlines and hotels and outdoor thing and spending and all this other stuff, people being willing to go to work and people being afraid of being in the office. I mean, Suicides, I, see this, I, I see this across all my companies yeah. where people, even though they're vaccinated and they're scientists, they're afraid to go to work. Um, And so, you know, part of part part of the perpetuation of the fear that arises from these uh, policies that are all about the absolute saving of any life is that you end up having a significant cost that's not related to the objectives of that particular medical organization and we see it around the world. I Sorry, this just goes back to what I said about leadership a few episodes ago, which is the, the leadership of the administration should be synthesizing the recommendation of that group, along with the effect that other groups might be indicating would arise from that recommendation and coming up with a kind of concrete, you know, kind of objective around, okay, well, how do we balance these, these different effects?
1: What you're saying is absolutely correct. The people who are making the decisions are only thinking about their responsibility. So it's like a secret service agent when the president's like, Can I go out and sign autographs? Like, absolutely not. They're going to say no because they are responsible for keeping the president alive. Now, the other pernicious thing about this is they kept trying to game the public. And the public, when you try to game the public and you get caught where they say, "Don't," Fauci says, don't wear a mask because he doesn't want to run out of masks. Then they say, keep the masks on because they want to, you know, virtue signal or whatever it is. Or they won't simply say the vaccine is not dangerous. Or that the vaccine is actually going to keep you from dying. They undersold the vaccine. And now everybody's going to question everything they do for all time. Don't manage us. Manage the facts. Stop trying to manage people and just start managing your communication and make it crisp and clear. And then somebody has to be a goddamn leader and say, okay, the doctors are saying this, the economy is saying this, and here's how those two things overlap. And schools being closed means more suicide in kids, more depression in kids, and people not being able to put food on their tables means we're going to create, who knows what this economic policy is going to create, which is another segue. David, you had something to say.
2: Well, I, look, I, I, I agree with that, but I think you guys are being a little bit too charitable to the CDC. It's not just that they're wrong, and it's not just that they have a bureaucratic in- incentive for for CYA and to be too conservative in their guidance. It's the fact that when an error gets pointed out, like by David Leonard in the New York Times. They double down on the lie. And so, Leonard followed up his, his article. It happened. So, go, go to this tweet that I just put in the chat. He said, at a Senate hearing today, Senator Collins asked CDC Director Dr. Walensky about today's edition of Morning, which was his article, which explains why the CDC's claim that less than 10% of COVID transmission is misleading. And Walensky then doubles down and has a bunch of excuses and basically defends this 10% number, which is a lie. Now, why would the CDC be doing this? There was separate reporting by the New York Post. Go to this article on teachers unions collaborated with the CDC on school reopenings. So, this guidance that the CDC put forward on school reopenings, the teachers unions were part of writing that guidance and all of their suggestions were actually accepted and incorporated by the CDC. Now, how is this science? This is politics. Uh, uh, last year, there were a bunch of articles accusing the the Trump administration of incorporating, you know, political considerations into their guidance. There were huge scandals about this. Where is the reporting today about the influence that the teachers unions are wielding over the CDC? To deliberately keep schools closed, even though the science does not support that. This is a gigantic scandal. And yet no one's covering it. It's left for the New York Post to cover this instead of the New York Times. By
3: the way, I think this is a good transition to that Druckenmiller interview because, um, you know, uh, Sachs, I just retweeted uh, what you had sent, which was a link to uh, to the video. Uh, interview. So, um, you know, Stanley Druckenmiller is this, uh, um, uh, incredible, uh, in, incredible investor. The, the goat. G
0: O A T goat.
3: There's a, there's a, there's many stories about Druckenmiller. At one point, you know, he's the guy that notoriously, they say, broke the Bank of England where he was betting against the British pound and forced the, 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 the central bankers in, in the UK to devalue the pound. And He's made billions of dollars managing initially George Soros's money and then um, spun off and runs his own money now as an investor. And so he he's a, a, a macro guy. So he thinks about kind of macroeconomic conditions and effects. And he talks a lot about Fed policy. So he gave this interview on CNBC. Um, and I think the uh, you know the, the the most kind of prescient quote, uh, and it was also based on an op-ed he wrote, right, Sachs, in, in the Wall Street Journal.
2: Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the interview is fantastic. The TV interview is great. Just watch that.
3: The interview is great. And he said, uh, in in, in the write up, he said, clinging to an emergency after the emergency has passed, uh, is, is what the Fed behavior indicates right now. And I think that, you know, kind of what we're talking about broadly is perhaps the emergency in the United States where you have this uncontrolled increase in covid cases. That's not the case today. So the emergency has passed. We still have covid, but it is not an emergency. And the point is, there's a lot of institutions and individuals and businesses that are still operating as if we were in the throes of the emergency. And and so Druckenmiller is making the the case that the Fed Fed and the Fed policy is acting as if we're in an emergency. But broadly, we're seeing this across a lot of institutions like the teachers unions and others where people are effectively, you know, never let a good emergency go by without taking advantage or whatever the the saying is. Never waste a crisis. Never waste a crisis. And the crisis, keep the crisis going is kind of the model everyone's in right now, which is like the crisis, milk the crisis.
2: They're keeping it going as long as they can. And Druckenmiller gave some pretty amazing quotes. He said that, well, first of all, he described our current monetary fiscal policy as being the most radical he had ever seen. And this guy's been watching markets for decades. The Fed has pumped 2.5 trillion of QE into the economy, post-vaccine, post-retail recovery. He said that right now, retail demand is five years above trend, meaning not only has retail demand fully recovered, it's where, if you look at the trend line, it would be five years from now. So they are pumping like demand like crazy. They've issued $6 trillion of new debt. And then this is the thing I didn't know at all. He said the Fed is buying 60% of new debt issues. Without this, the bond market would be rejecting this massive fiscal expansion because interest rates would become prohibitive. And he said that when, when interest rates revert to the norm, the historical norm, interest expense on our debt will be 30% of the government budget. So, I mean, well, think just, about that. that- just look,
0: the, the, the markets have had to intervene and we have essentially decoupled, um, what the, government thinks is happening with what the capital markets needs people to know. And that's a really unique dynamic. Like, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not nearly as successful as Stan or have been in the markets as long as him. But in my 20 years, this is the first time I've really seen that. So just to give you a sense of this, you know, the markets are now acting to establish inflation expectations, that the Fed just seems to not want to do anything about. And what was so for just to give you guys a sense of this, like, you know, when in February, the markets really kind of had its first capitulation. What happened was that all of a sudden people digested all these facts that Stan just said, and realized, wait a minute, like all of this money is going to drive prices higher. And so what they did was they took the they took the yield on the 10 year bond. Up by like 150, 100 basis points. And the markets freaked out. They went from like 0.75 to 1.75. And the Fed came out and said, Hey, hold on. Nothing to see here. This is everything's going to be fine. But then everything since then has been sort of leading to this realization. Commodity prices are up 50%. There's this kind of like joke that like, you know, you see a bed of lumber moving across a railroad. That's like a billion dollars of lumber just because of how expensive it is you know, there are shortages everywhere. You'll be shocked to know that today, Chipotle put out the following guidance, which is they said they are increasing the minimum wage to $15. And that within three years, you can make $100,000 a year at Chipotle. Yeah, that is as much as some engineers and coders in the United States. Dara Korshashawi, the CEO of Uber, said on uh, the Uber earnings call last week that the um, average hourly rate that some drivers in New York, Uber drivers in New York were getting paid was 38 bucks an hour. What? $38 an hour. So what does all of this mean? I think what Stan is trying to say. $100,000 a year. But we're in this weird place where we've decoupled. The government institution that's responsible for fiscal stability And then the overall capital markets used to work in tandem, and they're no longer working in tandem because you have a narrative and a set of data points that aren't supported by the facts. And so this is an interesting thing. So in the CDC versus the American people example, there's no way to push back, right? I mean, governors can act independently, cities will act independently. But at the end of the day, you know, the teachers unions are working with the, the CDC, the school camps have this guidance, and you're stuck in this morass. In the capital markets, that's not necessarily true. And so you can change and you can, you can re-rate asset prices based on sentiment. And I think what everybody is saying in this example is we're past the emergency. We've put too much money in the economy. We need to reopen and we now need to face the fact that there are massively rising prices, which means that there will be inflation. And if you don't act the capital markets will continue to act for us. And so this is an example today where you're just seeing a bloodbath in the markets. And by the way, the, the only time the two government officials tried to be on the either side, Janet Yellen last Friday kind of casually in an interview kind of put her toe out in the water as Treasury Secretary and kind of said something that said there could be inflation and literally was hand slapped and had to put out something that disavowed her comments less than 24 hours later. Um, So that's where we are.
2: There's there's a bloodbath in the markets today. And there's been one for the last couple of months. And in particular, all the growth stocks have been hammered. And just to build on what you're saying, Chamath. So there's an announcement today. There's some data that the the, uh, inflation, the CPI is up 4% uh, and climbing. And so people are now pricing in big interest rate increases. And so that makes growth stock, that hammers growth stocks because all the earnings are in the distant future. And so they get now discounted at a higher rate. And so the valuations get absolutely hammered. So you know it's 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 absolutely souring. Uh, The the markets are basically souring on this Biden agenda. And you know I just you know I I, I'm beginning to wonder if Biden's going to be a Jimmy Carter here because frankly all he had to do was leave things well enough alone. COVID was winding down, we had a vaccine, all they had to do was distribute it to as many people as possible, end COVID, let the recovery take shape. And instead, they pushed this insane $10 trillion agenda of taxes and spending that are now overstimulating the economy, that are causing inflation, that are now well, inf- creating interest rate increases.
0: No, that's, that's, not, that's not true yet. Meaning, he did do a good job on the vaccine, David, but then to your point, the federal government's posture on reopening has still been stunted. And he's proposing so much more incremental capital, which we all know probably will not be efficiently spent. And there isn't any other good ideas. And so he believes his path to re-election, which is true, is to spend and to put money to, put money to the economy. I think to it's going
3: to put- backfire. I think it's going to backfire massively. And, and to tax, right? So he's, the spending, he's trying to, to, he's trying to offset with higher taxes on the wealthy, which uh, you know, from his point of view is not going to affect him. And, and the analysis is probably fair. It's not going to affect his, his voter block um, uh, significantly. This is going to
2: backfire massively. Look, if the economy turns, we were set for a post-COVID boom. And right now, that is all at risk because, Jamal, like you're saying, they're keeping the economy closed or par- parts of it way too long. They then overcompensate for that by printing a ton of money, and then they overcompensate for that by raising by taxes way, sorry, too much. Just
0: to, just to build on that. So that second step of their overcompensating their inability to open with money is so true. Because then what happens is your labor force stays impaired because people make enough money by not working. This and is the key that-
1: issue right now for a lot of businesses. I mean, you have restaurants that are overbooked, cannot get servers. Jim Cramer was saying he's, he's up to $18, you know, per hour per servers, he's going to move it to 20, it won't make a difference. Because with that extra 300, I think, in federal, uh, federal unemployment, plus three to 700, I think, depending on where you are, you're now at 60, 70, 80%. And people are like, well, people will still go to work. And it's like, yeah, but you're saving commuting, and you probably have side hustles, and you've lowered your commute expense. So what is going to incentivize people to go back to work, we are now running a dry run with cryptocurrency, and, you know, stimulus, a UBI experiment, and the result of this UBI experiment is uh, negative economic growth, or uh, throttled economic growth, we cannot be productive if people don't want to work and contribute.
0: So we, just to your point, we, on, we need on more Friday? people
1: to go to work.
0: So just to your point on Friday, Montana, which was part of the federal government's, um, you know, pandemic related UI benefits program, basically said that we're canceling those benefits and we're opting out. And on top of that, I think they're now offering a $1,200 bonus to return to work. And the problem is because they Montana now has a severe labor shortage, but it's not just Montana, it's every state in the union. So we have these two opposing forces, right? We have so much stimulus, we have um, an under labor force, we have more taxation, that's also just going to be wasted. So very poor ROI. And then now we have input costs going up. Um, and prices going up to try to attract people. It's it's all going to drive here's, price the, inflation. Um, here's
1: the quote from the governor of Mississippi, the purpose
0: of unemployment benefits is to temporarily
1: assist Mississippians who are unemployed through no fault of their own. After many conversations over the last several weeks, with Mississippi small business owners and their employees, it has become clear that the pandemic unemployment assistance, and other like programs passed by the Congress may have been necessary in May of last year, but are no longer so in May of this year. And can you imagine the hit you're going to take from voters, from woke mobs, from people who believe in income inequality, when you say, I think we have to stop sending people free money. So they go back to work like this is a very hard position to take. Um, and we now have this occurring on a micro basis in California, we have a, is is it true? We have a $75 billion surplus this year as the city devolves and now we're going to take that and instead of lowering taxes and maybe trying to get Tesla or Oracle or other venture capital firms that have left. Instead of doing that, what right. would be what would be what would, what could we do David with that 75
2: billion? Okay, well, okay, so great point. So the 75 billion dollar surplus, one third of that is a f- is from the federal bailout, which obviously we don't need and that's the money printing that's coming out so of Washington. So we're giving that
1: back, right? To another state? <laughs> that could <laughs> yeah, use good it. Yeah, good luck.
2: Good luck. Exactly. Yeah, no. Okay. The other two thirds is because last year we had all these unexpected tax receipts from the stock market boom, and so you had ah. all these California taxpayers paying capital gains on that. Mm. So, but but what this highlights to me is, and I, what I wonder about is how many of those taxpayers have left the state because we know that we had net migration loss of 182,000 in 2020. So, how many of those people left the state and won't be paying taxes this year? And if Biden breaks the stock market through this insane tax and spend then where is this like surplus going to come from next year? And what this highlights to me is, I think we have people in Washington and Sacramento for that matter, who've lost sight of the fact that ultimately, the private sector and and the public sector are a partnership. Because the private sector generates the largesse and the wealth to fund the public sector and to fund the creation of these public goods, to fund education, to fund law and order, to fund social programs. And they've stopped seeing it that way. They see the private sector not as something like a cow to be milked or, a, you know, or, or um, you know, or a sheep to be sheared, but they want to skin the sheep instead of, instead of shearing it. And, um, and so, they're, they're really at risk of, uh, or, you know, killing the golden goose. I guess you could put it, put it that way. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, during the Clinton years, just to take a, just to take a contrast, we had a, a government spending as a federal government spending as a percent of GDP was between eight and a half and twenty two percent. That was the range, and we had a boom. Uh, so when you have a federal spending as a percent of GDP around twenty percent, it works, right? And that doesn't mean you can't increase government spending. It just means that government spending will increase as the economy gets bigger. But what you have now is federal spending over thirty percent of GDP, and everything is starting to break. That's the problem
0: very, very big problem.
2: And of course, and that's why we're all getting red pilled, right? How many people in Silicon Valley, frankly, who make a living off growth stocks are now starting to scratch their heads going, gee, what did I vote for?
1: Uh, it's definitely becoming a thing. And uh, I would say the, the purple pill party, you know, like chop it up. Let, let's mix these two <laughs> things. Let's candy flip whatever it takes like to get out of this. You know, we got to get this party restarted. Centrism is the answer. It absolutely is, and you know, centrism is the answer. I I think it's probably good for us to take a pause here and uh, maybe talk about this uh, Business Insider hit piece, uh, or what was likely to be a hit piece, but turned out, I think, on the margin, fair. um, Calling this all-in podcast, and I, I didn't, don't know if this is accurate, but I thought it was pretty funny. Possibly the single most disruptive click in California politics this year. I think they're referring to the four of us. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, I get absolutely skewered for making clucking noises. I own those clucks. I'm proud of those
0: clucks. Here's what I'll say. Can I I say something? I think that, look, our, I don't know, I'm a little exhausted about local politics and California politics. I'm not exhausted by... Federal politics, because I think it's, it's an important, um, lens, as David said, into like how we actually conduct business, because all of the businesses we're involved with are inherently, uh, global and America leads. Um, here's what I'll say though about, about that article, which I didn't read. Um, like most of these things, which I don't really read. Never read your press. <laughs> Rule number one in the game. I think it's incredibly <laughs> important to realize that. Um, California was a bellwether for opportunity and the ideals of American upward mobility. And a lot of people came here irrespective of the taxes, because they sought out like-minded people, they sought out a moderate liberal, liberal viewpoint, and an economic set of opportunities. Two of those three boundary conditions are changing. And that's why I think California is now important, because it is a canary in the coal mine for the rest of the United States, which is, do we become a balkanized country of 50 states? Or are there like generic, progressive, moderate ideals that everybody can agree to and sign up to, and where governments largely still get out of the way this, like, I don't think, you know, if you look at sort of like tech oligopolists and the hatred we have for them, I don't think political oligopolists are any better. And so, you know, I don't think we want either of them in charge is really the answer. Um yep. I think that's a good point. And so we just we just got to use this um election cycle I think to kind of like vote a moderate agenda. The most disruptive thing that can happen in California is somebody emerges who is rational and moderate who says you can categorize me as a Republican or Democrat on a whole bunch of issues. I had to pick a platform because this stupid election model makes me pick one. So call me a Democrat or call me a Republican. But the reality is I'm a centrist. Here's what I believe. And if that person gets voted in, then hopefully it changes the conversation for the rest of the country. Otherwise, we are headed to 50 balkanized states, operating independently. And Jason, the thing where you make a joke is actually kind of sad. If you get $25 billion, and you don't need it. The ideal thing is that you actually give it back to the federal government, because you think there's some accountability for all these dollars, and it actually is the right thing to do. And the fact that everybody laughs, because we know, of course not, we'd rather just dig a ditch and fill a ditch for 25 billion, or, you know, two and a half miles of high speed rail, (laughs) whatever the crazy thing is. That's kind of sad. And it's so it's, that, always, that's it's all sad
2: that. and it's corrupt, right? It's a corruption corrupt. It's a corruption that we've just gotten used to, which is you're going to take 26 billion that you don't need, that you don't deserve. It's like the school board in San Francisco announcing they're going to open school for one day to qualify for incentives for reopening that Gavin Newsom gave them for 12 million bucks. It's a pure money grab. It's, out, it's outrageous, you know? Um, it's all about the Benjamins for these guys. And, and by, by that, I do not mean students named Benjamin
1: um uh, <laughs> wow now, there look, you go folks but, but, david sachs yeah. punching it up on the next snl i wonder, what, <laughs> I'm I'm wonder why i'm not as good as you. Invite you to come with them. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm gonna stick with my i'm not as good as you Jason. i'm gonna Get stick with my, my day job but, but but let me can we go back to this article i want to give you my two cents on this article um i did uh I, I you know it was behind a paywall so it was hard to to read but i got a copy of it here's my view on it first of all i think they did pull their punches a little bit because we did the pre-buttal You know, we called them out before, based on their very biased list of questions they sent me. But in any event, they, they kind of pulled their punches a little bit. But the article was kind of suffused with this, how dare they pissiness, you know, And in a couple of areas. One was, you know, the reporter was very upset that we're going direct, right? We've talked about going direct, meaning... Um, going around reporters and speaking directly to the public—it's kind of well. How dare they do that? You know, they should be talking through us. You know, uh, uh, you know, we the objective reporters, and then we'll tell the story for them. No, we're going direct. We want to have an influence. We want to speak our minds. Um, and the second thing they're upset about is the fact that we're contributing to these. Elections. And the reporter made a point of saying that I sought out the Boudin recall. They didn't just come to me. I sought them out and wrote $25,000 as if what is he really up to? Why did he seek them out? Well, if you want to know what I'm up to, I've written about it. I wrote a blog on you know the problem of Chase beauty, and I've written a blog on the on how Gavin Newsom has moved very far to the left. You don't need to speculate or wonder what I'm up to. I've spent thousands of words yeah, tweeting but here's about the problem, it, and talking David. about it.
1: David, they want you to go through them. Exactly. And the fact that this podcast has bigger reach than when we go on CNBC or bigger reach than we're in Business Insider and you know when the New Yorker article on Chamath comes out more people will listen to this podcast than read that article. That's right. what well, this there, is there, about. Yes, absolutely. There's, there's and a certain and threatening nature to what we're doing here where you know as they admit we're more influential than they are, well then why read them? Like what is right. the point? Especially if they're doing link baiting, they look even they look dumb when compared to the dialogue we're having here. They can't have right. the dialogue we're having here because let's face it, we're, we're for insiders. We see the, what's happening on the inside. And if we talk to them, they might get 10 or 20% of the picture. And in aggregate, they might get to 50 or 60, but we get hundred percent.
0: Let me connect a couple dots because I think what you're saying is, is really important. In my mind, I think this is another example of like the CDC example or the financial markets example where in all, in all of these cases, what we have is the following dynamic, which is like if you think about when the newspaper used to hit your front door, right? Like you used to wake up and, you know, when the paper was delivered, right? We all remember that. And you'd pick it up and it was a physical paper. Now, I'm just going to use it, uh, uh, this number to make, to make an example. Let's just say it was eight and a half by 11 you take this eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And what you have is a fixed container. And so what there was was inherent competition. And so inherently, you had this leverage where it was only the best things that got into the paper, right? They segregated by sections, people wanted to advertise against it. And having a fixed amount of of real estate really made that real estate precious. And I think that that was really, really important. Now think about what's happened. When you go to that same paper online, let's just use the New York Times. Effectively, that container has become infinite. And so now you've completely taken away the ability for anybody to actually assign real value, there's no above the masthead or above the fold concept as much as there used to be, especially in infinite scrolling. The point of all of this is this is why there's no value in coming back and re, you know, telling the truth. You just go to the next clickbait title. Because you just keep on going and going and you just wonder, Hey, wait a minute. To tell the truth is an inconvenient artifact of my business model today. Whereas before telling the truth was really important. It was an anchor, which created more value for you to sell ads. Now it's just, it just gets lost in a sea of things.
2: There's such an agenda. So,
0: th- so the point is the financial markets in this interesting way is the only, or it's one of the few places left where you can vote in real time about the truth. Right. And so for example, like, you know, you get all of these readings, and you get all of these documents from the Fed, which is the financial markets version of the CDC. But you can vote that you don't believe them. And you can see it every day the gap between what they say is narrative and what the facts are. And that's a really healthy dynamic that still exists in in finance and capital markets. We just need to figure out a way where it exists everywhere else. Otherwise, people will always want to make sure that they have a direct conduit to tell their version of the truth and allow people to decide for themselves.
1: Uh, Before we get to science with Friedberg, if he gets his camera back up and running, I don't know if you guys know, but Vox canceled us this week with an assist from Taylor Lorenz. The funniest, darkest turn in all of this is the multimillionaire VC is co-opting the language of young women, MLM marketers in an effort to seem cool and hip with us. Why white men are using the term besties? I don't know if you saw that.
2: I think that, uh, I think Taylor Lorenz has had her sense of humor surgically removed. <laughs> I mean, doesn't <laughs> the doesn't she, uh, monitor <laughs> doesn't yeah, doesn't she understand that this is a self-deprecating, self-mocking bit that we came up with or that you came up with? I mean, come on, it's a gag. We know it's funny for fifty-year-old guys to be calling each other. Just, besties. just
0: the, the reason why, by the way, just if everybody wants to know the origin of that is one of our other friends, Phil Helmuth, kept calling me. Bestie, C, and we used to think it was the dumbest thing that we've ever heard. And then what we thought was would be even funnier is to just co-opt it, and it was and done him bo- no credit to both, but it was done both initially to make fun of what how Muth used to call me. Right well, then we Phil, used to call well,
2: Help Muth actually has the maturity level of a teenage girl. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. With the name <laughs> dropping, I don't. I, when he used the term bestie, he was not using it ironically. Whereas no, so no, it was no, no, Bray- no. we're using no, not it ironically. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah yeah hey um let's talk a little <laughs> bit about science so we can keep the friedberg ratio up for all these friedberg stands including the pe- per- whichever maniac is running friedberg's dogs anonymous twitter handle i don't know if you talked to twitter security about that yet friedberg
3: my dog's on a walk right now he'll come back and then he can tweet later as well it is my it is my dog that runs the uh, the account yeah Yes,
1: so much for our ratings no tweet yeah what what is your dog's name again Mon- Monty
3: monty montgomery wiggins with no Montgomery
1: this this is going to be lowest lowest episode in a long time but
3: his name was um was Wiggins at the SPCA where I adopted him from and I uh and I wanted to name him Monty because he's like a hustler he hustled his way you know from the streets of the mission into a nice condo in Pack Heights so I gave him the full name Montgomery so he's Montgomery Wiggins now oh here he is Monty
1: come here come on come here come here up come on d come on monty okay tweet something there he he goes um hey um there's a lot going on with synthetic biology we saw two uh different ipos in i believe the last month or so tell us about um the the gink ginko bioworks public offering and the xamarin ipo well so,
3: so so the the premise of synthetic biology which dates back you know many years, right? Genentech is one of the first companies, uh, to uh, effectively use synthetic biology to, uh, to, to make products. So, you know, Genentech and Amgen started making these proteins that, that became biologic drugs. And the way you, um, you can kind of think about synthetic biology is the DNA is software and we can program the software to get the organism of the, uh, uh, you know, whatever DNA we're changing to make something that we want to use. And so synthetic biology is all about editing the genome or editing the DNA of an organism, um, editing its DNA, uh, and doing that in in a way that you can kind of make a product. And so this was done initially for biologic drugs. um, And and over the last kind of 20 years or so, Using synthetic biology as a a kind of approach, we've kind of thought about, well, how can we make things like fuel and increasingly more commoditized products like, um, you know, proteins that we might consume for animal consumption uh, instead of using animals to make proteins? Um, And so the underlying technologies have all followed uh, an accelerated path that's greater than Moore's law. You know, DNA sequencing costs have dropped faster than Moore's law over the last 10 or 15 years, the ability to synthesize or print DNA uh, CRISPR, per, per, you know, kind of provides us with a set of tools to do much more precise DNA editing, and, and so on and so forth. And there's just a confluence of technologies, sort of like there were leading up to the uh, personal computing revolution that are now gonna enable this incredible pr- proliferation of a new industry that many argue will rewrite all industrial um, uh, systems, all industry that makes everything that humans consume from materials to food, to the chemicals, to the plastics, everything that we use in our daily life can be rewritten using synthetic biology. And so the promise of this dates back again, like two decades or so, there was a company called Amaris that John Doerr backed. Uh, That was one of the first companies that was one of the few companies from the original synthetic biology companies that actually survived and made it through. And they're still around. They're still a publicly traded company. And more recently, there have been these kind of more digitally enabled, at least that's the premise that they kind of make for for what for their businesses, companies. So Zymergen, which was, you know, got a bunch of SoftBank money, they raised a billion dollars as a private company. Uh, They got public with like, I think, 13 or 14 million of revenue, uh, and they're worth $5 billion in their IPO. So they just went public. Um, And this other company called Ginkgo Bioworks, uh, which is a similar sort of, you know, synthetic biology platform company just went public uh, or just announced that they're going public via SPAC at a $15 billion market cap with, you know, uh, I think less than 100 million of revenue. So, um, you know, the the game is on. And and I think one way to kind of think about this is um, these businesses aren't great businesses today. But the promise of the next century being um, all about synthetic biology, you know, where, where biology becomes software and you can program biological organisms to make and print pretty much anything we as humans consume is a premise that everyone believes is going to come to fruition this century. And it will completely reinvent industry will improve sustainability. I think it is going to be the great savior for this planet and for our ability to sustain on this planet. So these are kind of, you know, two big IPOs that validate that the capital markets are there. There's so many big institutional investors, Chamat can share more on this, that are like backing, quote unquote, ESG companies. Synthetic biology is this kind of ESG, you know, moment. and, uh, and, 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 and so I think the, these two IPOs happening at the valuations that they're happening at and the capital that's going in. I think these are kind of like the Netscape moments for synthetic biology and we're going to see a tremendous amount happen over the next couple of years.
1: So Chamath, how close are these from being science projects in a lab to being scalable revenue companies in your estimation because these are de minimis amounts of capital we're talking about. So this feels like de minimis amounts of revenue. De amounts of revenue, large and amounts of capital. large amounts of capital is this a is this? Um, h- how far is it to, to actually cross that chasm?
0: We, um, I think that we're still trying to figure out what the right business model for these companies is. So for example, like if you look at chip design, right, like so um, there's an entire value chain where there's the people that manufacture the equipment. Right there's the people that run the factory. There are the people that um, develop the tool chain, so the software that you can use to characterize and build a chip. Right, and if you look at those industries, the the factory in the middle tends to be the least valuable. Companies like Verilog, you know, folks that make the software are really important, and then folks that make the equipment because the equipment is so precise and very complicated is valuable. If you translate that to biology. We need to sort out where the value is going to be. So the the, the amazing thing about Ginkgo is what its promise is, what the promise that they that they're going to make to the market is we're going to make um biology programmable so that the the, the an entire generation of biologists and chemists who would otherwise have not been able to just actually literally like write into a command line interface and generate um, biologic samples, we're going to be able to enable that the same way an electrical engineer. So like, you know, for example, like, you know, when I was doing internships, or you would literally be writing Verilog, and it would get, you know, basically generating what was called a netlist, and you could send a netlist to a fab and all of a sudden, out comes a chip. So that's what we're trying to do. The problem that they have to figure out now is, are you a tool provider? Are you, you know, pick and shovels? Are you doing it yourself on balance sheet? Are you and a product company? Yeah. Are you a product company? And this is where we're too early to know what the answer is. But as the market sorts that out, as David said, more people will get comfortable applying money. This is why Zymergen and Ginkgo um, are two really important data points, because as David said, it will force the market to help these companies rationalize where they are and what the tool chain looks like, and compare it to semiconductors. And in that you're going to have an entire generation of companies get built. It's super exciting. I, I spent time in and around these businesses without getting too specific. And uh, I think they're really compelling, really interesting.
3: And this is I mean, I never I, I, I don't generally speak my book. <laughs> but this is where I spend most of my time, right? So I really am making a bet on my career and my capital and my time on um, synthetic biology um, uh, and uh, and the opportunity it presents for our species this century. So all of the work I do, and I have several businesses that I would say compete with Ginkgo and Zymergen in different ways and are attacking this problem in different ways, which is, uh, I, I mentioned this last time, but how do you produce enough bi- what biological material? How do you make stuff? Once you've, Go got, once you've got- fermenters. Fermenters. <laughs> and, you know, so are there fermenter tank companies? Are there you know, cheap fermentation platform companies, you know, do we need to scale these things up? Do we need to kind of reinvent how they're operating? There's a lot of stuff we need to kind of figure out over the next couple of years uh, for this to really kind of sweep the world. But the, but the fact that we can like program biology to make stuff for us is, 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 is kind of where we're at today. That's the moment.
0: So here's another example of a, a fabulous company. This is this is a private company. But you know, you'll, exp- you'll see them in the next probably three or four years debut as a public business. Um, called pivot bio, another synthetic biology company, which I think is just masterful. And you know, what essentially pivot bio does, it essentially is a clean alternative to synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. So like you put this shit in the ground when you're planting seeds. And what it enables is plants that were previously incapable of nitrogen fixation, meaning getting nitrogen out of the soil, they're able to do it. Now, all of a sudden, yields go up, density goes up, predictability of the crops go up, and it's a huge advance for yeah. farming. What's, what's you know? interesting
3: about, um, you know, so pivot bio, like, like Chamath mentioned, there's a lot of plants like soybeans, legumes that will fix nitrogen. They'll take nitrogen out of the air, right? Most 70% of the air is nitrogen. And so plants need nitrogen to grow. All protein has to have nitrogen in it. So nitrogen's key to growing plants. Corn, you need to put nitrogen on the ground. So around 6% of global electricity is used to make ammonia, which is the fertilizer that farmers around the world put on their fields to grow their corn. And the, and the, uh, the, the ammonia that sits on the field and doesn't get absorbed by the plant turns into nitrous oxide, which is a 300x worth greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Think about that. 300 times the heat capacity of carbon dioxide when it goes up into the atmosphere. So, the environmental effects of nitrogen-based agriculture are awful and, you know, pivot is one of the first. They actually commercialized a research microbial strain to do this and you put it on the seed before you put it in the ground. But now the ability for us to engineer microbes and the microbes now pull the nitrogen out of the air and, and stick it into the plant. The ability for us to engineer microbes opens up this universe of possibility where pivot is kind of like, you know, kindergarten level of what's going to happen over the next couple years, where we can now engineer all these microbes to pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere, and maybe reduce all fertilizer use and have a huge effect on greenhouse gas, um, resulting from 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 uh, from agriculture.
1: A lot of what you've mentioned seems to be things in the world, products that can be improved and refined. What about inside of our bodies? I I know there are some efforts to understand what cells are doing and maybe use synthetic biology to get a reading on a molecular or cellular level as to what is going on inside your body. And then there are these self replicating systems that might be able to, you know, I don't know if your white blood cells were low, you know, and it was the 80s and it was HIV, you could just boom, produce more white blood cells with a shot or something.
3: Well, the original idea of Moderna. Um, which we all know now as being kind of this RNA vaccine producer, was you could put RNA in your body and therefore provide the code to get your cells to make specific proteins that can do things in your body. And so we did this. Example? To make this, well, the example we're using now is the COVID vaccine, right? So it makes the COVID the spike protein, which we then develop an immune response to. But the idea with Moderna is you could eventually replace medicine with these RNA shots and now your cells can start to make specific proteins to do specific things in your body. Now, we're very elementary as a species in our understanding of how proteins drive systems level biology and outcomes. So we're starting to learn about this, but I will tell you there is a really interesting research team at UCSF uh, led by um, a woman named Hana el Samid. and um, and this research team is identifying they're building a toolkit of proteins where these proteins can almost have like robotic arms, they can have really interesting function. Think about Martin Short in Inner Space. Remember that machine he went in, he went in the body and he started doing stuff in the body. They're working on building basically a toolkit. So it's not just a single protein that now you it goes and does something, but really complicated combinations of proteins that can now go in the body and fix things and repair things and and react environmentally to specific conditions in the body like, oh, there's a cancer cell here, I'm going to go do something to it now. Um, and and so there's this whole there's this whole world of like dynamic, you know, kind of making things more dynamical than they have been historically,
1: just just thinking about aging, would it theoretically be able to help with hearing loss, eyesight loss? You know, and those type of things, uh, would you be able to?
3: There's another area of biology, w- we could talk about this at length, but there's another area of biology called stem cell therapy, where you can basically take, you know, all cells evolve from stem cells uh, in, your, in your body. So these are kind of the original cells that you have initially in an embryo, right? And then uh, as your body kind of grows, you end up with these stem cells, and you have stem cells in your body today. Those stem cells, when they make a copy, they can differentiate into different cells in your body. So, for the last, you know, 10, 20 years, and California, by the way, has about a $4 billion, if I remember right, stem cell grant program, where they're funding research into stem cell therapies. So, there are significantly successful therapies right now multiple companies are productizing and launching and they're already active in the market for fixing blindness with people that have specific diseases called retinitis pigmentosa, where your your the, the retinal cells in your body and your eyes degrade and stop working, you will get a stem cell injection of progenitor retinal stem cells into your eye, and you will grow a new retina and you can see again. And the efficacy is insane. It is incredible how well this works. And they are doing this with lots of other stem cell therapies. So We're getting so smart and here's an incredible thing scientists discovered a few years ago and I think these guys won the Nobel Prize for this. You could take any cell in the human body and induce it chemically, meaning you put a bunch of chemicals on that cell and get that cell to convert back into a stem cell. Now you've created your own stem cells from your own body and you can now put them back in your body and get them to turn into any other cell in your body. So this is called induced pluripotent stem cell therapy. IPSC. So IPSC now forms the basis for a lot of these stem cell therapy kind of um, programs that are underway. And so this is going to be an an insane field over the next couple of decades. Hey, hey, uh,
1: Friedberg, if we took the $25 billion that we don't need in California and gave it to these companies, how quickly could we survive? How quickly could we solve this problem? Nothing drives
3: me more nuts than when I see money not going to science. I mean, it is just I mean,
1: seriously, like, let's, we need to start our own political party that is based on reasonable suggestions, like the one I just made or the ones, you know, the middle ground party, just a a
0: reasonable party.
1: Do you think there's possibility
3: for a third, for a a true third party in the United States?
2: Structurally? No, it's really set up to be a two party system. You have to really take over one of the two parties. And frankly, the problem in our politics right now, I'm not saying the Republican party is great, but the Democrat party has basically been taken over by woke socialists. So, you know, but, so, I think that kind of, like, limits your options. Um, but, I mean, you, what you have to do is create a movement and then you, you basically take over one of the parties. Right. I mean, what we're describing today, I mean, just to up-level it is, I, it almost feels like we're in a race between technological acceleration and social and political deterioration. Right. So, like, wow. te- technology. Wait, say it one more time. We're, we're in a race, I think, for the future between technological acceleration and social and political deterioration. Wow. And the question is, which one of these forces is going to win the future? Everything Freeberg described is incredibly hopeful, right? We're going to be able to cure people with all these miracle technologies. I mean, even the new mRNA vaccines that were developed for COVID, I mean, it's miraculous, right? And we're going to be able to use that same mrna technology for other things other diseases maybe even to attack cancer cells so there's so many positive things happening and we all see it in the technology ecosystem there's been an explosion of wealth creation and opportunity created over the last 20 years in technology and so we have this very positive force and then everything that seems to be happening in our politics and society is negative it's it's involves deterioration it's it's basically um special interest corruption. It's, um, you know, it's basically people wedded to these insane ideologies. And you're right. Like what we really want is just a pragmatic, a pragmatic party that allows the private sector to do its job, generate the wealth necessary to then fund social programs instead of trying to upturn the whole system, uh, which is what it feels like so many people in power are trying to do today.
1: Yeah. So I registered, uh, I registered Reason Party for us if we if we ever want to go there. So if you
0: want to bookmark Reason Party. <laughs> let's uh let's let's uh, talk about this tonight, boys, because I gotta run. Oh, and oh I'm, uh, is it on? Yum yum. I'm gonna see two of you tonight. Yeah. I cannot wait. Sax, you gotta fly, fly up. You gotta come fly on, Sacks, up. Sax, what's what are the you point doing? of having
1: a bird if you don't let the bird out of the cage? Our friend from LA is flying up. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can fly their friend who All puts right. the ball All in the right. basket yeah. is uh, coming. <laughs> yeah.
0: There are many friends. Many friends. friends. <laughs> Come on, Saks. Come Basketball on. Basketball
2: friends. Free the bird. I'll take it under advisement. Speaking of bird, they just announced a, a SPAC today. So <laughs> oh,
3: Here comes uh, the here plug. Here we go. gotta go. go. Love you guys. I gotta go. I'd like
2: to give a shout
1: out to bird
3: on SPAC.
2: I love
1: you besties and we'll see you next time. See guys. On the All In Podcast.
0: Bye bye. Bye. Love you guys.
2: We'll let your winners ride. Rain Man David Sack. Oh, and it said, We open sourced it to the fans, and they've just gone crazy with it. Love you guys.
0: need to release that out
2: uh, cool. uh, <laughs> What your are What your What We need to get merchies.